may be seated. If you would please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we continue our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and today we look at Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, verse 33 through 39. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 through 39. Please give attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sepectani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, that we would see Jesus Christ here this morning as we come to sit under your word. Illumine Jesus Christ to your saints, to your children's hearts. This morning we pray, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In verse 35 of our passage here this morning, the bystanders hear Jesus cry in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, Lema, Sebektani. And they misunderstand the words Eloi in Aramaic, which sounds very much like Elijah, they, they misunderstand those words and think that Jesus is calling for Elijah. And so the, as the soldier goes to give Christ a, a drink of sour wine, which Jesus himself requests, as we know from John's account in John chapter 19, fulfilling the scriptures in, in Psalm 69, verse 21, that says, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. As he's as he's asking for this wine, and as the sour wine is coming to him, the bystanders say, wait, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. Clearly, misunderstanding the words of Christ that he has uttered in Aramaic. And what it is they are misunderstanding are perhaps the most mysterious words in all of Scripture. When Jesus, the Lord of glory, says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here for the first time we see Jesus is unable 
to see God as his father. It seems as though that filial relationship evaporates as Christ is here hanging on the cross. That, that, that fatherly care that we, we saw at the first back in chapter one when Jesus is baptized and the, and the heavens are opened and the spirit descends upon Jesus and he hears those words from his father from heaven. Behold, you are my beloved son. That same fatherly care that we saw again in chapter 9 at the Mount of of Transfiguration, where the Father doesn't say it to Christ, but he says it to, to Peter, James, and John. Behold, this is my beloved Son. That same fatherly care that we even saw in chapter 14 at at Gethsemane, even as, as Jesus is nearing the cross and he's, he's in anguish within his spirit, even, even to the point of death as he, as he contemplates that, that cup of God's wrath that is going to be poured over him, even there in that despair, he is still able to utter the words, Abba, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as you will. But now he sees no loving father, but only an angry God, it seems, who has forsaken him. What does this mystery spell for us? That the eternal son of God that has enjoyed eternal fellowship with the father, who has enjoyed eternal fellowship with the father in the spirit as the second person of the Trinity, what does it spell for us that the the spotless son of David, God himself incarnate, who was without sin. What does it mean for us that the son of God, the son of David, the spotless, perfect, righteous servant would utter the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, I want us to look at two things that it spells for us this morning. First, it spells for us judgment. And second, it, it spells for us restoration. First, it means judgment. It means God's judgment. The word forsakenness carries with it the idea of abandonment. And oftentimes, as you, as you read commentators who would comment on this passage, and that's usually the word connotation you will see. It's probably the word connotation that first pops up into your mind as you see this word forsakenness, you, you think that the father has, has abandoned the son, and certainly that is apt. But that abandonment in no way means some sort of physical distance that God and, and Jesus have here. It's not, a, it's not a physical sort of abandonment and distance as though Jesus is far away from God physically. Rather, what it means is that Jesus Christ, who is bearing the sins of the world, quite the opposite, has come near to a holy God in his wrath against sin. In verse 38, we are told that the the curtain was was torn in two from from top to bottom. Well, that temple curtain was, was the curtain that would separate the holy of holies from the holy place. The holy of holies was that that place where the Ark of the Covenant and and the mercy seat was. And it was the place where where God would descend in the form of a cloud on the Day of Atonement. And only the high priest could enter in on that one Day of Atonement. And only after he had gone through a series of rituals to make himself clean. 
And what that temple was, what that, what that curtain was, was really a wall of separation between God and his sinful people, Israel. It was really meant to be a, a curtain of protection, if you will, for Israel, who was sinful and impure. Because if they were to come near to God in his holiness, near to that covenant, that ark of the covenant where God specially bound his presence to, he would swallow them up in his wrath. We might think of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. You recall that story of Uzzah as he's, as he's carrying the ark of the covenant and he's transferring it over to Jerusalem and Uzzah trips and falls and, and he touches that ark as an, as an unclean sinner and he is consumed in the wrath of a holy God. So that, so that when that ark makes its way to Jerusalem, it must be placed beyond, behind the curtain as a protection for a sinful people. For sinful Israel. Isaiah 33, 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? It is a fearful thing, the writer to Hebrews tells us. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the veil in many ways, the curtain in many ways, was there for the protection of sinful Israel. The veil was so that they, they wouldn't, if you will, be forsaken by coming near to God in his holiness as an impure people. And so what do we have here with Jesus? We have Jesus Christ going beyond the veil, coming near to a holy God, bearing the sins of the world upon his shoulders. But not just the sins of his people there in his time and place, but the sins of all of his people, past, present, and future. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Paul will say that God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now in the context of Romans 3, those, those former sins seem to be Old Testament saints' sins. As Paul will continue in chapter 3 and chapter 4 to speak about guys like David and Abraham whose sins have been forgiven. Old Testament saints' sins heaped upon Christ here on the cross. It's as though God is taking the sins of his saints, the Elijahs, the Elishas, the Davids, the Abrahams and Isaacs and Jacobs. He's, he's taking their sins and he's holding them as it were, not crediting them, not imputing them to them, but holding them for this very moment where he will heap them upon the shoulders of Christ, reckoning them, crediting them to Christ and to his account so that he can bear their sins at the cross in Calvary. But lays upon his shoulders are his Old Testament saints' 
sins. What lays upon his shoulders are your sins, are my sins. John 10, verse 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in as well. All of the sins of Christ's sheep, from Adam all the way to the last convert before Christ comes again, is imputed and reckoned and credited to Christ here on the cross. All the sins of Abraham's children that Genesis 15 will tell us number the stars of the heaven and the sands of the seashore. All the families of the earth's sins heaped upon the shoulders of Christ. He doesn't merely die. Though as Hebrews 2.9 tells us, he truly tastes death. For everyone. He drinks it all in. Because as Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin for us. And in becoming sin, the Father must, the Father must forsake his Son. Because as Habakkuk 1.13 says, the Lord is pure and he cannot look upon evil. When we consider the sins of the world, past, present, and future, heaped upon the shoulders of Christ, the mystery becomes not how could God forsake him, but how in the world could death not hold this man down? If there is any man that death would hold down, it's this one as he carries on his shoulders the sins of the world. He comes near to a pure and holy God as the most impure and unholy sinner this world has ever known. Due to your sins and due to my sins heaped upon his shoulders. He is forsaken by his Father for us. No wonder there is darkness here in this event for three hours. Samuel Rutherford will speak about this darkness and he will say it's, it's as though creation itself must hide its eyes as the Lord of glory is hanging on the cross, bearing the judgment for our sins. Darkness throughout the Old Testament was often a symbol of, of God's judgment and God's wrath. We are told that the, the darkness begins at the sixth hour. You probably have in your Bibles a footnote that will, that will tell you that that is at noon. Well, that correlates very well with the prophecy we read in, in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, where, where God is speaking about that day of the Lord, that that day that the prophets constantly speak about, that day of judgment upon Israel. And in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, speaking about his judgment upon Israel, God says, And on that day I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the whole earth in broad daylight. 
I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Listen to this. I will make it like the mourning for an only son. What this darkness represents at noon is not only judgment upon the sins of Christ's people as they hang on Christ's shoulders, but it is the day of judgment against Israel. It is the day of judgment against the false shepherds that we have seen through, throughout uh, Mark, this whole gospel of Mark, the false high priests and, and scribes and elders, those false leaders and false shepherds that, that go back centuries within Israel. Much of the reason why they were exiled in 586 BC and in Babylon. And even when they came back into the land, they continued with their false leadership. They continued to soil the sanctuary of the Lord. If you want to know how truly depraved and, and perverted the high priest had become, just read the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi. How does the Old Testament end? It's a word of judgment and warning and exhortation on the leaders within Israel. And the New Testament picks up and it doesn't get any better. No, it just gets worse. As the high priests, chief priests, scribes, and elders hang their Messiah on a cross. As the temple curtain is torn in two, the day of judgment upon Israel has dawned. The day of the, day of the Lord has dawned. That, that old system has been rendered obsolete. Those ceremonial laws, the blood of bulls and goats that could never take away sin is rendered obsolete as the true day of atonement comes when Christ dies on a cross. The darkness really ushers in a new stage of redemptive history where the ceremonial laws that have been unable to make pure are extinguished. And the temple mount, as Jesus will put it in Mark 11, is thrown into the sea. It is God saying along with Christ to faithless Israel, to the false shepherds and high priests and all that bind themselves to them, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. The forsakenness of Christ means judgment upon our sin as it is laid and imputed and reckoned to the account of Christ but it also means judgment upon unrepentant Israel and her unrepentant false shepherds. This is the day of judgment for the old system. A new redemptive historical era and epoch has begun with the death of Christ. However, this day of judgment also brings with it a day of restoration. It also brings with it a day of restoration. At the end of the book of Amos, in, in chapter 9, God says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel. The day that is darkness for the enemies of Christ, represented by the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and all those that do their bidding, 
is also at the same time a day of restoration for all those who are united to Christ and his death through faith and repentance. This is seen as well in the curtain being torn in two. It's interesting to consider that that word that Mark uses there in, in verse 38, that the curtain was torn in two. It is the same Greek word that we get back in Mark chapter 1, verse 10, where, where we read of Jesus' baptism, and the heavens were torn open, and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, inaugurating his, his priestly service. The heavens were torn open. Think about it for a moment. After Christ is resurrected from the dead, where is it that Jesus will ascend? It's not into the physical holy of holies in the temple in Jerusalem. He ascends into heaven itself. Heaven itself is torn open by Christ's sacrificial work. And he enters into what the writer to Hebrews says is the more perfect tent not made with hands. He entered once and for all into the holy places. Heaven itself is torn in two by the blood of Christ. And Christ now makes the way for all those covered in his blood to the heavenly holy of holies to the heavenly Jerusalem as he dies in earthly Jerusalem and tears the earthly curtain that makes the way to the earthly holy of holies. Something has taken place in heaven. In Christ, we don't have mere ceremonial access to God. We have real heavenly Jerusalem access to God. The curtain of heaven itself is torn in two. The way to God at long last is open. That face-to-face union and communion that Adam, our first representative, had with God that was, was disrupted by sin has now been restored as Christ pays the penalty for our sin and ascends into the heavenly holy of holies as our representative and high priest so that in him we have bold access to the throne of grace. Eden is restored in this second and last Adam's death. The temple of heaven itself is opened for us by Christ. We saw earlier in our unison reading of Scripture the similarities between the ninth plague of Egypt and this darkness that here pervades the land at Christ's death. In that ninth plague in Exodus chapter, uh, chapter 10, you have darkness that, that, that covers the land of Egypt for three days. And what does it immediately precede? It precedes the death of the Passover lamb that will usher in the Exodus. Well, what do we have here with Christ's death? We have darkness over the land, not for three days, but for three hours. And what does it immediately precede. It precedes the death of the true Passover lamb, Christ, ushering in, as it were, a new exodus for all those that are united to him.
by faith and not the waters of the Red Sea, but the heavens themselves are opened so that we now make our pilgrimage journey to heavenly Canaan, to heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews chapter 3, the writer will say, you share in a heavenly calling. You share in a heavenly calling. And what will he base that on? He will base that on the difference between Moses and Jesus. Moses being faithful over God's house as a servant. Jesus being faithful over God's house as a son. Because Christ is the beloved son who hangs on a cross in demonstration of his full faithfulness to the mission his father has given him. He wins for us not a physical Canaan. He wins for us a heavenly Canaan. He gives us a heavenly calling. Verse 37, Mark says, He uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This is really best translated as, as a great shout. He uttered a great shout and breathed his last. In John's account, he tells us he shouts, it is finished. Christ's final words are not whispered in defeat. They are shouted in victory. The mission is complete. The suffering is over. The seed of the woman's heel has been bruised, but the head of the serpent has been crushed so that he can utter his final words recorded for us by Luke. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now with his mission complete, he goes back to his father with the shout of victory and triumph. And he enters into heavenly places and he sets aside a heavenly seat for all those he has purchased with his blood. So that Paul can say, even now, brothers and sisters, you are currently seated in heavenly places. You share in a heavenly calling because your Lord has shouted, it is finished. And he ascends on high and reserves a seat for you. Verse 39, as the centurion witnesses all of this, he says, truly this was the Son of God. Now, I don't think what he says here is, forgive the the heady language, is an ontological declaration. I don't think what the centurion, the soldier here is, is saying sort of a Nicene Creed sort of confession that he is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. What does it mean coming from the lips of of this centurion that, that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, in Rome, the Son of God was Caesar. It was a title that they would they would often give to Caesar, the king of the then known world. You may recall a few weeks back, I I mentioned a famous inscription dated to the year 9 BC, and that inscription reads, the beginning of the gospel for the world brought to us from Caesar Augustus. 
And that inscription is eerily similar to the way Mark begins his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At the very beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark is telling us that the good news of Christ is the good news of the true Son of God. And here at the end, with a soldier employed by Caesar, employed by the Son of God, as he sees Christ hanging on a cross, he utters, this was truly the Son of God. Mark telling us, the reader, that Caesar is not king of the world, but Jesus Christ is king of the world. And what is it? What is it that spawns this declaration? What is it that ushers in this this declaration from the centurion? But it is the death of the king. It is as he is hanging on a cross that he says, this is the son of God. Think of Revelation chapter 5, verse 6 where John turns and and he looks at the throne that is in heaven, and what is it that he sees? He sees a lamb that has been slain. The citizens of this kingdom do not pick up their swords. They pick up their crosses, and they deny themselves and serve their king, the lamb who has been slain. Friends, don't take your eyes off your king. Don't take your eyes off your king, the lamb who has been slain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... We are speechless as we read this. We lie dumbfounded at such divine love. What wondrous love is this, O my soul? O Father, help us to see the cross afresh here this morning and give us the assurance that is ours as sons and daughters of the kingdom in the knowledge that our king is the slain lamb before the foundation of the world. And help us by the power of your spirit to pick up our crosses and make our way to our heavenly home, to be pilgrims on the way and to hear the heavenly calling that comes from our king exalted up on high. Do this, we pray, for we ask it. In the strong name of our Lamb who has been slain, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you please stand for our closing hymn, Jesus Paid It All.